everybody. Thanks for joining this incredibly crucial conversation that we're having today, ethics for pediatric feeding disorder. I felt like this was the perfect time to do a shout out, thank you review for my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. So thank you to Jason for the review, a five-star review on Amazon. He says, if you've been digging for better evidence-based information to actually help your kids with feeding disorders, buy it. Thank you for the all caps, dude. I've been recommending to all the SLPs in our clinic because this information needs to be out in our communities. And it's genuinely an enjoyable read. Michelle's voice is so funny and encouraging to read. So Jason, thank you for the review for Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. And everybody, thanks for tuning in to the podcast. And don't forget, Chasing the Swallow is also eligible for 1.35 ASHA CEUs or 13 and a half hours of continuing education on speechtherapypd.com. Enjoy. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, everybody. We are closing out 2022 with industry leaders for pediatric feeding disorder. And with my whole heart, I am grateful for the magnitude of work that these women have put forth for the teams that they have created, for how they truly are leading by example. As I shared with them before we got started, today's episode, which is Ethics and Pediatric Feeding Disorders, honestly, for me personally, this comes from, full disclosure, a place of a broken heart. I sit back and I watch how our field portrays themselves on social media. And it leaves me significantly worried about what our caregivers find when they go to the world of social media, because there's a lot of clickbait for fear purposes. There's a lot of individuals that present articles that could be misconstrued by an exhausted, weary caregiver. And there's individuals out there who may or may not realize that they're misrepresenting the work of others. And also, there's just a lot of ugly on the internet, and that sucks. And so today, we are going to take all of that unpleasantry and flip it for joy. We are going to put good in the universe. 
So in alphabetical order, because I don't know how else to kind of do this, we have none other than Donna Edwards, who is an associate professor, author, inventor, and national international speaker and board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders at Baldwin Wallace University, inpatient, outpatient, SLP. And she serves as the chair for the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders Mentorship Committee and a member of the Application Committee. Also, heads up, she's come back to talk about National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders in February. Then we have none other than Dr. Memory Goza, who PhD, CCC, SLP, who's a SLP, board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, associate professor and chair of the communication disorders department at the University of Alabama. And you lead a Alabama dysphagia collective or group. Yes. I'm co-founder of that with Dr. Kendra Yaren. Yes. And then we have Dr. Georgia Melandrecki, PhD, CCC, SLP, BCSS, and Asha Fellow, who's an associate professor at Purdue University and a board certified specialist. And she's the guru behind the Purdue I Eats Lab. And folks, how many times have I said, go check out the Purdue I Eats Lab Instagram page, because this is where you find the quality. And she's also president of the Dysphagia Research Society, and her and her partner are just doing phenomenal work out there. So everybody, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes. Hi. I'm like, and I'm Michelle, podcaster with a giant microphone. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Nothing will top the time I pulled that out of the box and my husband was like, so what is happening right now? So y'all, thank you for coming on. Everybody's like, she's closing out the year with a joke like that. It's 22, y'all. 22, that's where we're at. Okay. So we have a lot of ground to cover and all of it's kind of serious because when we talk about ethics, it's the part that people get squishy squirmy about. It makes us inherently uncomfortable. And I think it's a shame, fear, embarrassment response, right? That's just my personal gut reaction. But before we get started, could maybe y'all work through and talk to us about like, what does ethics of PFD mean to you personally? Because we all have a story. We all have a heart there. Yeah. So around the ethical conversation in PFD and in medical settings in general, go back to this idea of first do no harm for me. And that's where a lot of practice I think at least it originates is that the person that I'm working with should be better off when we're done than before we got started, right? So that principle of first do no harm is paramount, I think, to what we do. The other piece of it for me, Michelle, you hit on at the beginning is just we are dealing with vulnerable populations. Around research, we have to give specific information about what we're going to do to help protect vulnerable populations, children, pregnant women, if you're working with people in prison populations, because we know that people in vulnerable positions could be easily fooled by things that seem to be too good to be true, things that could help them remediate a situation that they are sometimes desperate to help. And that, I think, summarizes sometimes the PFD population we're working with. Parents are desperate for help by the time they reach practitioners a lot of times. And they already know there's a problem. That's why they came to see us. And if that's all we can offer in terms of saying, well, here's the problem and I can show you this test that says there's a problem, then we we haven't left them in any better situation than what they were before they initially came to us. And if we're not providing evidence-based care, then there is the potential to do harm, which of course violates that first principle of ethics there. So for me, when you asked about joining this panel and, and being a part of this conversation, that's where my mind went, was around those initial principles there. I agree with you, Mamre. I think really looking at that do no harm and helping to help the families and the children to be as autonomous as possible, bringing in their culture, bringing in diversity, helping them to find help in an evidence-based manner, you know, so that they're not trusting things that they've heard here or heard there or something they clicked on the internet. You know, we need to pull in that family structure and really get their, what are their goals and how do we search the research and how do we get our skills and integrate it all together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just going to add, um, I think you both hit it right <laughs> on target, I think. Absolutely. I think the other component that I just to add is that 
I feel that ethics also has to do a lot with the ability to self-reflect and yes. be honest with yourself as a clinician about what you know and what you don't know. I understand that sometimes we may come across as knowing more than we, what we do, you know, maybe because of that desire to really help and really be the expert who's going to help fix the problem. You know, we all, I think we all have that complex a little bit, right? But we really, you know, we're dealing with not just quality of life, but health and life and death situations here and growth situations here, especially in children, right? So I think it is even more important to be as honest as possible with ourselves and be able to self-reflect about what are our boundaries, what do we know, what we don't know, and reach out when we don't know. I see that a lot sometimes in, you know, younger clinicians or in students, but even in more seasoned clinicians sometimes that, you know, increased confidence in what I already know or what I already have seen working, that confirmation bias that comes into play a lot of times. We really have to be, all of us, more humble about what is happening and what we know and what we don't know. And the reality is we don't know most things yet. Yes. And our field is very, very We're young. We're still learning. We're yeah. still learning. So to me, ethics is directly associated with that attribute as well. We really need to be open to self-criticism, self-reflection, and really open to hearing things and updates because things are very, very new and our field is changing almost daily. So we have to be more open to what is what is new and what is happening out there. It's not easy, but we have to build that attitude. Yeah. And I think it falls into there as well that we need to do the continuing education all the time because yes. there are such changes that are happening and we're learning new things every day. So ethically, we need to keep searching the literature and doing the continuing education courses that are out there. Yeah. If we sit back and critically assess our baseline academic coursework, we're falling short. So to the younger clinicians that are listening, you may have attended a graduate program where you actually had a peds dysphagia class, but I'm going to go out on a limb because I'm turning 40 in three months and I did not have a peds dysphagia class. It was one night by a brilliant, thank you, Dr. O'Donohue, by a brilliant adult dysphagia professor, but it was the one night. And now we're in the situation where a lot of academic programs have a peds dysphagia class, but it may not be mandatory. It may not be a full semester. It might just be like in-service or a elective embedded within, but then take it another step farther. That class might not be taught by somebody who's familiar with pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. And the vast difference between peds dysphagia and adult is, I mean, you're talking a peach to a, I don't know, potato. Like it's so different, right? Sorry. Those are, I'm working on peaches and potato with the patient on Monday. So those were my first food groups that I thought of. He's stabbing it on a fork and we're eating it. So go team. But Very good. <laughs> also, I really like red russet potatoes. So if you need a potato recipe, I am your girl. But that's kind of for your framework of what academic experiences that we're bringing to the table. And that falls short. Bottom line, one semester, even a full semester dedicated to this topic is still just not enough because the baseline content you have to know from NICU all the way up to teenage young adult and the different settings, there's no way someone can be a child expert in all of that material. It's just too vast. But how cool is it that it is that vast and that we have these different individuals that have those actual specific specialties? Yeah, I would add to that too, Michelle, that our graduate programs are not designed to produce experts yes. in any one area, right? Like our training is as generalist across a vast scope of practice. And one of the challenges working in academics, coming from a clinical setting that I have found is giving our graduate students a skill set that will then help them become 
competent in the areas where they work so that even when they don't have specific coursework to a diagnosis that may walk into their door that a person may have, they have the skill set they need to find the missing pieces of information so that they can provide competent care. And I think that is a challenge within our graduate programming. But that is when we approach it from what are the skills they need to be able to find the information to facilitate the care that they're going to provide. I think we can do that versus being able to give enough clinical experiences and enough didactic coursework to cover every possible thing that a speech pathologist would need to know. Because one of the the great things about our area is that it is fast and they we do touch so many aspects of a person's life. I think that's an important distinction there is that we are not training experts in any one specific area in a graduate program, but we are charged with infusing the skill set that they need to advance their clinical practice once they get out and are practicing in those areas. Yes. I think another facet of that is established clinicians who are already out there and have been in their practice for many years. And I'm extending on your branch, Michelle, you know, you went out so far on your branch to say when I went to grad school that we didn't have a dysphagia class at all. I had a colleague who happened to have a DHS thing. Yes. (laughs) And we're looking at it at her home turning and we're looking upside down. What are we looking at? It fascinated me. I wanted to learn more, but I had no idea what I was looking at because we didn't get that in grad school at that time. So there are many clinicians out there who are established who also need to do the continued learning and continued education if they're going to work with pediatrics with feeding and swallowing disorders so they ethically can provide the good care and support those families. Okay, so can I give a praise report? Angie Neal, who's the lead SLP with the Department of Education for South Carolina, for the last 18 months, we've worked on a project. And right now, for the very first time ever in the SLP Companion Guide for Speech Pathologists for the entire state of South Carolina Department of Education, Chapter 13 includes pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. Huzzah! Thank you, Angie. Well, that sounds great. Oh my God. It's beautiful. It's down to like the detail of the team and like the different roles and how we are ethically responsible for interacting with interprofessional practice teams, like in the allied health and medical health outside. Like we spent a lot of late nights. It was a work of love. Yes. It was a work of love. But now our babies are straight. They're going to turn three and go to the schools and still be covered. Which is wonderful. If only we could get that across the country and across the globe. So we're sharing it with Feeding Matters for free so that they can have it as a guideline for best practice. So like we're literally trying to replicate and have it. Did you share it with NFOSD? Not yet. You'll have to think about that because families get on that website too. It's not just clinicians. Okay. So Dr. Melendrecki, you were saying that you had a thought for an extension on what Donna was saying. What were you thinking? Yes, on, on what memory and Donna was saying. And in response to your question about, you know, the academic programs falling short. I mean, as memory said, it would be impossible to cover every single thing that you need to know in a two-year academic program that we keep adding and expanding the scope (laughs) of our profession, right? So it's impossible to ask that of academic programs the way they are designed right now. And that's another discussion about (laughs) if they have to be redesigned in the future, right? That's a much bigger discussion. But I will say that the main thing that I'm, at least what I'm trying to do in my program and in the two courses that I'm able to teach, I teach an adult dysphagia course and then a seminar in pediatric feeding disorders. What I'm trying to really train the students is I'm trying to give them resources that will be available to them later on as well. I'm trying to make them familiar with the research and the theories behind some of our practice whatever we have, we don't have a lot, but from what we have, and to teach them resources that they can go back and keep learning about how to apply some of these theories, some of these principles, some of these frameworks into practice. It is, of course, we can teach them or train them on some techniques, sure, right? Maybe some that have a little bit more evidence than others. But as I said earlier, the evidence in our field is very, very low, even for things that we think that are very well established and that everybody should be doing, 
If you look at the actual data and the research articles, the numbers, the number of subjects, everything is relatively low because we are a very, very young field. I think people need to understand that. And that's why it's so important that we teach the way to think and the theories behind sensory motor development, behind rehabilitation, behind exercise physiology. That's what we need to be teaching more so than do, you know, a chintak or do this or do that, right? Because it's really understanding why some of these techniques or exercises or strategies or motor learning protocols or whatever else works. If you understand the why, you will be able as a clinician to, first of all, judge what you are learning in continuing education in the future as well, right? Yes. Question continuing education offerings, because that's another big issue, I'm sure that you all agree, right? Yes. But also how you will be able to adapt and apply different things for your patients, which we need to do anyway. So we have to go beyond the, I was not taught that in grad school. So what am I going to do now? I hear that. I see that on social media all the time. And I, I mean, I try not to, but I take it a little bit personally because what I try as an academic and professor to do is not to teach the specific technique necessarily or only, but also to teach the why behind it. Because if you understand the why, you'll be able to adapt the techniques. You'll be able to criticize the literature, to criticize and critique the person who's coming to teach you a continuing education unit, question them about what they're telling you, how matter how shiny it may be, right? And cool looking. If you understand the why behind it, I think you will be in a much better and more powerful position to make decisions later on. We cannot expect that every single thing you need to know will be taught to you. I will give you the other argument. Even if there was a course in pediatric feeding, it was a master's program, two years, four years, a PhD in pediatric feeding. Some of you have done that, right? Memory has and several other people. During a PhD, what you learn is that you know almost nothing. Because you understand how much there is to know and you value that and you respect that whenever you learn something new and whenever you treat a patient. I think that's what's missing sometimes from people who have done a master's level program without having appreciation of the theory behind what they're learning or the research behind. When you do a PhD program, I think that's the main thing, at least I learned, how humble I had to be because the knowledge that we don't know is so vast that you can get lost. So what do we need? We need to understand the theories behind things because if we're expecting for evidence, high-level research evidence for every single technique or nipple type or, you know, thickener type or, you know, exercise. That's going to take more than our lifetime. We will all be dead. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> like, we, we can't go through that. So what do it we do now? Lifetimes right? to do that. What do we do now? We need to understand the underlying principles and the underlying theories so that we can adapt better. That's what graduate programs should be teaching across all fields, in my view, to make really powerful clinicians. Otherwise... Yeah. I think if you are taught specific techniques only without understanding the why behind, the problem is you think you know, oh, I know how to do this because I learned that technique, right? Yep. I'm going to do it. And then you get the confirmation bias because then you try it with a couple of people and it works. Oh, it worked with a couple of people. It will work with everybody. I know what I'm doing. I'm the best at this. That's how things happen. But if you really look into the knowledge and the evidence and how little we know, you really remember to be humble. And I'm going back to that because that's, I think, so, so important. And I'm not saying researchers are not humble either. I think we all need to be more humble in general. I'm not dividing here. But, you know, going back to the basics is the important thing. And I think that that's what the programs should do. Because it's not it's impossible to teach you every single thing that you need to know. So I think that argument that, you know, we didn't do, the graduate programs didn't do a good job or we didn't learn everything. I didn't learn this. And all of these surveys, I mean, if I see one more survey, I'm sorry to say this. <laughs> I see one more survey of people asking, what did you learn in grad school? Mm-hmm. First of all, there's no way that anybody can truthfully respond. I can guarantee you there are things that I see some of my students 
talk about, like as clinicians, later on clinicians in social media that I've taught them. I know what I've taught them. I have the... We talked about it. But there's no way to remember every single thing. In grad school, we're taking 20 to 24-year-olds. And in two years, we are making their brains explode. <laughs> we them to remember everything. It's just so much, you know. I'm sorry, I'm talking, I'm probably... Like I'm using these words because honestly, I feel very passionate about this. this <laughs> but is I, I think we have to keep perspective about what is doable in a graduate program, yes. but also what is meaningful to train clinicians for. Okay, so I, I, I think there is, you know, that self-reflection again. I appreciate what you've said because it is the framework that we should be teaching in the graduate coursework that will help students then apply theory into practice. So teaching the theories, teaching development, teaching what we know in the classroom, and then they can apply that in their clinical settings when they're working with skilled clinical educators that can then hopefully say, we're doing this because of this. I'm applying this theory to this situation. That is the ideal. That is what should be happening. And I think there is some level of I don't know if it's immaturity or just mismatched expectations about I'm going to finish the graduate program and know everything I need to know. There's no way you're going to finish the graduate program and you're going to have the skills and framework that you need to then continue learning throughout your lifetime. And that's what builds a skilled clinician. The chin tuck's not going to work every time. The thick and liquid's not going to work every time. And so when it fails, you have to understand within the theoretical framework what it was supposed to do. So then you can elucidate why it didn't work. That's then how you know what to try next. You know, it's not a series of do this, then do this, then do this in a rote prescriptive manner. We don't have that. We have to be critical thinkers, and that's what makes a good clinician. We have to teach critical thinking, critical analysis, and then they can apply it in the field. Yes. And they can do the the lifelong learning and just keep it going. That's the piece that I see. I mean, I'm a community-based clinician. I'm doing early intervention, and this falls not just on us as the speech-language pathologist, but I'm also going to put the onus on our interprofessional practice partners. I mean, I have regularly encountered physicians who have not heard the term PFD and we're 18 months into, well, give or take 14 months into having a new ICD-10 code, but you're a pediatric GI practitioner. This 11-month-old is not being a behavioral feeder when he's having emesis if we're trying to increase the volume of the G-tube feed and then engage in oral trials. This is all, yes, lifelong learners for all of us. I love the three of y'all. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So on this note, I'm going to get back to what we'd like plan to discuss on, but like <laughs> squirrel number 487 million for 2022. So when clinicians are looking at this, and this is the starting point, whether they be a super green CF or if they've been out in the field, but are just like South Carolina, we now have clinicians new into PFD because of this new policy update. How do they actually evaluate what they're seeing on social media or they're seeing in general as the new research or new, this is best practice? Yeah, I'll start the piece and then I want you guys to jump in there. I think one of the critical pieces there is to think about themselves as a clinician researcher, to evaluate information the same way they evaluate research. And I know reading a research article and analyzing it is not the sexiest thing that people will ever do, but it is that same skill set that is necessary when you're evaluating new techniques and new information in clinical practice, right? Because people are good at promoting things. There are skilled marketers that are trying to get us to buy new equipment and new tools and that kind of thing. And so when it's presented to us, it is up to us as the clinicians to think through it in terms of what is this information telling us and to not fall for some of those pseudoscience indicators. I think I sent an article to you guys ahead of time about different pseudoscience indicators and things that'll help clue us in to if something sounds too good to be true, it 
probably is. And so the questions that we can ask there and in the article, they listed a whole, I think there were 10 different things. Yeah. 10 different common characteristics of things that maybe aren't true scientific information, lack of falsifiability, overuse of ad hoc hypotheses, lack of self-correction, emphasis on confirmation, evasion of peer review, over-reliance on testimonial and anecdotal evidence, absence of connectivity of the new claim to previous claims, extraordinary claims. This works on everybody. This will solve all the feeding problems. Use of hyper-technical language, absence of boundary conditions, like all of those pieces are things that we can use to help evaluate new claims, right? Is there peer-reviewed evidence to support it? What level of peer-reviewed evidence is there? Is it observational or is it experimental? That makes a difference. You know, observational information is helpful at the beginning, but we should continue building on that to eventually get to experimental level evidence where we can say this works and this works the same as this other technique or better than this other technique, but that requires direct comparison. And a lot of our literature in speech pathology, not just in swallowing, but in speech pathology in general is at that observational level. It's in its infancy, like Georgia was talking about. It's not high-level studies out yet. It's still in its infancy. And as a clinician, if we get overly attached to, I think that my hypothesis is that this particular technique or this particular method is going to work with this particular population, then we still want to move beyond that and look at the evidence for what supports our hypothesis, but also what is contraindicated, what is not supporting our hypothesis so that we can look across the information and really critically think about it. You know, we want to search that out. So you want to consider those rival hypotheses and look at the full information. You don't want to just pick those things that support what your thoughts are or what you think is working with this one particular client. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to be open to questioning yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not self-reflection you were talking about, Georgia. Yeah. yeah, which is not easy to do. This makes me think currently of the tethered oral tissue issues. Like this is what is the first thing that pops to my mind. And I say this knowing that because I have my CLC, my certified lactation counselor, people assume on the surface when they see CLC attached to my name that I'm going to be pro cutting all the tethered oral tissues. But like I have, I I am so far not that person. I am the first person that's like, oh, let's not ever, 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 never. But like mm, it's indicated in like truly three to 5% of the literature. But after a sleep study, after we have referred to and a trained sleep board certified otolaryngologist and we've done compensatory strategies. Like we've seen, you know, lactation counselors that have their IBCLC, but that's honestly the first thing that comes to my mind is when I see social media present one, a picture of a child's mouth without any frame of reference of functionality of how it's doing. It's just a picture and isolation of a child's lingual frenulum. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, we have that there so that we don't swallow our tongue. But I mean, that's just, that's a very brief summation of a tiny little piece of tissue. But when I see this on Facebook or I see this on social media and everybody jumps to, have you had it cut yet? You need to cut that yet. It breaks my heart because y'all, Asha has a channel to ask questions within the SIGs, within the Asha community, such that the responses that are given for the most part are closely monitored. I've seen some outliers, but they're from the Great Center field and they respond on the Ash community apps for free, right? And I did see one point in time where an individual reported a patient had gone and they had severed the tongue from the floor of the mouth on accident. And it was a younger clinician and she said, what do I do? And it was crickets. Nobody had any response, but it was a dentist that had gotten a laser and and severed it. And all I could think was, oh, this is where you get a really good lawyer. But like, I mean, for the family, which is like, <laughs> I mean, I said nothing. I was a silent observer to this forum post, but that's my first thought. But I mean, input guidance, I'm out there, man. <laughs> well, you can't do anything from a single picture, right? Like that's Thank one you. point in time. And if this wasn't a podcast and it was a video vlog, like I could stick my tongue out and you would see that I have a fairly significant tongue tie. It has not impacted function 
ever. So does my child. Like he also has a, a tongue tie, but again, has never impacted function. So assessment is multifaceted and it's never just related and not just for tethered oral tissue, but just like in general, assessment is multifaceted and it should be, and it should rely on validated instruments, you know, not just um, brief observation in one limited context. Yes. Yeah. There's tissues for a purpose. I mean, we were born with them for a purpose. So just because they're there doesn't mean that we, we need to have them excised. Yes. Yeah, looking at the whole picture and the functionality is absolutely critical. Then you can go into the whole discussion about so what is an anterior tongue tie and what is a posterior tongue tie and how can you define it? <laughs> like you can go into all of these, you know, issues and discussions. But I will say that, you know, bottom line, I think the kind of like taking a step back. So first of all, if people want to be using evidence-based practice, right? You know, there is this triangle that we've, you know, all of us talk about and are taught about, you know, you need to follow the research evidence and combine that with the clinician's experience and then with the patient's perspective, but really starting with the research evidence usually, right? So first of all, just so that it is out there, social media and podcasts and blogs and I don't know what else, like anything similar are not evidence, are not research evidence, are not peer-reviewed evidence. Even if you have the best researcher, scientist on a podcast, it's still their own view that they are presenting from their own lens. So that has to be out there, I think, as a disclaimer right away. So that all of that that somebody sees on social media is is, is not research evidence that you can base or you should be basing decisions on. Now, with that being said, I'm not saying that everything that is being told in social media or in podcasts is, you know, is something that you, you know, not valid or unreliable. I'm not saying that at all. But I think, you know, we have to start with that statement. I think the other piece, which I do think, going back to a little bit on the academic programs, I think that, you know, times are changing so rapidly. The way people learn is changing so rapidly and the way information is, is disseminated. We, we are in the information era. That's what this the last, I think, 50 years. Things are changing very, very rapidly. And I think one of the things that we need to, all of us, be more cognizant of is, you know, actually have or create some ground rules about how to navigate this new social media world. I am personally, and I don't, I don't have this, the solutions, and I, I, I really value the article that Memory sent, and I think those are some great tips, initial tips. But I do think it almost has to be an exercise that people do on how to navigate between all these different misinformation and good information that is out there and the way it is being presented, because I honestly don't have the answers to that. And I will tell you what's happening right now especially on Instagram, I think, more so than Facebook, but Facebook as well, not just for PFD, but for a lot of areas across speech pathology, is, is very scary. You know, I share your sentiment. It's just, you know, it's, it's very scary. And I, I don't have the solutions, but I do think that we need to be incorporating a lot more of talking about that. And I think it's great, you know, starting with this podcast and discussing about, you know, is this a problem? And if it is, what do we do about it? So I think it is, you know, important to know what it is, what it's not, and then, you know, try to find some solutions about what to do about it. I don't know. I'm honestly, at times I'm, I'm in shock as well. There's no way anybody has time to start responding to individual posts all the time about how wrong they are. Sometimes we will, but you know, there's no time. There's no, and then do you even want to go there? And how, how good is it for your mental health? And (laughs) to argue with a thousand people that may strongly believe for wrong reasons, their own beliefs. So there's lots of layers to this and I don't have the solution, but I do think it's a, it's one of the biggest problems in our profession right now, personally, that's what I think. Yeah. Well, and learning takes place in the context of a relationship too. And so I think that's one of the issues in responding blindly to things on social media or um, other types of avenues where people can respond anonymously or can post things without the context, right? So we don't know what they know or what they believe. They don't know what we know necessarily, you know, so there's a mismatch there when you 
try to approach a learning situation in a in an anonymous context. I do want to give a shout out to Jordan Hazelwood because she has started some initial work where she's training her graduate students to evaluate social media posts and to evaluate con you know claims of things on various social media outlets. And I think that's good work. I think that talks to what you bring up, Georgia, of it's another skill set that we have to give to our graduate students. This year when I was doing debrief about the class that I taught, and so I was asking the students what worked, what didn't work, you know, what what do you like, what do you don't like? One of the pervasive comments was, well, there's just so much reading. Like you ask us to read all of this stuff. (laughs) It's a lot. And is there a podcast or is there another way to, you know, get the information? And and so to speak, Georgia, to your point that the way that we teach has to evolve with student preferences and that sort of thing. But we have to make sure that we are infusing that evidence-based triangle and the skill set to evaluate information, whether it comes from a podcast or a vlog or whatever else, so that they can discern what is truth, what is evidence from what is opinion and what is I'm trying to sell you something. Or get likes. That's what kills me. Mm-hmm. It's when I see I am just old enough that I am in that millennial generation, gen- the millennials. I'm, I am one of these, but I'm on the older edge of this. Uh-huh. So I didn't grow up with a phone. I didn't grow up with, you know, like the things that the younger millennials like take for granted. And my husband, bless him, he's the next generation up. So sometimes when we talk, there's like a mismatch because of, you know, a little bit of age there. But I say all that because I recognize that Technically, I fall in that generation where we do go to social media or for resources, for information. And in truth, when I'm designing my syllabi for next semester for the two PFD courses that I'm teaching, I actually, knowing that they're going to absorb content from from podcasts, I go to the ones that you lovely ladies have been on because I know that y'all reference your own personal research articles, but then I back it up with this is the assigned research article. And Dr. Rocky Garcia out of Florida, she was at Joe DiMaggio NICU before she went into faculty. She has a really great assignment that she designed about how to evaluate the social media. But like that's, so Rocky, if you're listening, thank you. I'm borrowing your assignment because I mean, we talked about it, but like, but that is something, and I am hyper aware because I'm, bridging this, right? Because I am in the world of, you know, the giant podcaster, but like also wanting to instill and teach. So I don't know, it just makes me hypersensitive to like, am I doing, are we doing this right? Right. So I think you are identifying, it is a very big responsibility, what you are doing too, and people like you, right? It is a very big responsibility and it's it's to your, you know, honor that you, you you are somebody who is looking out for the evidence and for the people who are producing the evidence and, but it is a big responsibility of, of all of us. I mean, you know, from the academic side, researcher, clinician, consumer side as well, the consumer also has responsibility about what they are consuming, right? So it's it's a multi-level issue and problem. And I think that one other thing, and memory, thank you for reminding me about Jordan's work, because I also viewed it and I, I think it, it's it's great and it's, one, it's very much needed, as you said. But in addition to that, I think the other thing that, and this is more of a criticism towards more of the academics and the researchers, I feel like we need to somehow find the time, which I know that's the, that's the problem a lot of times, right? But we need to really build in the time to be the other pole out there. Because I think that's, that's what the problem is sometimes. Sometimes there's so much of, you know, people that have the time to do the promoting, the marketing are not going to be the people, like we work 80 hour weeks, at least most of us, between the service we do, the research we do, the teaching we do. There is no way we can also have time to unless somehow this is recognized as an issue and it is so that we can build in the time and i do think it is because you know we are thinking about and if we want to really bridge the the gap between evidence and practice we need to be closer to the practice we need to be closer and right now especially with younger generations that's how they communicate 
So we need to be there. I know a lot of times I get criticized because I do use, you know, we have our lab social media and we do spend time. And some people will say, but, you know, you could be doing other things. But I think that's an important part. It's vital. That we need to come across, right? That needs to come across. It's not just to promote what we do, but it's also to be the, the pole of the science and the evidence behind some of the things that we do, the small, you know, circle of things that we do, right? So that it's not just the shiny for-profit stuff. There's lots of other things out there, right, as well. And we, we, need, we, need, we have our responsibility, I think, from our side. And I think that goes with associations and societies, including, you know, the society that I represent, the Federalist Society and other associations and societies that I know that Memory and Donna have been associated with. I think there is a responsibility of these associations and, you know, the researchers to also reach out and, and find ways to be approachable and accessible in today's era. We can't just think the old ways only. We can't just wait for people to come to the conference to see us. We need to be more available in order to really help patients. Because ultimately, if that's what we want, to help patients, we need to make the time for that type of connection. Otherwise, we're really just helping our careers and our own selves only, right? So I, th- I think we, we really need to, to do that. So I have an idea. What if we pitch for SIG13 to have a social media page? Because this is like a neutral territory, right? That to me, like what if the app that you have to download, but like what if there was an honest to goodness like social media component to SIG13 that focused on expediting the research to practice piece? And I know this is just like hypothetical, but that to me seems like a viable outlet that we could like actually take action on and get in partnership with the various labs that are across the country so that when the researcher doesn't have the time to maintain their own research page, they could submit and have it just like, hey, check this out and then just submit the information. And then a volunteer within the SIG 13 framework, someone who does have the time could pull the information and present it. I don't know how to make that happen, but like this seems like a wonderful idea. So and I don't think that any of us represents Asha here, so I don't think we can speak. <laughs> okay, we can, so we'll- we can speak to that. I mean, I will tell you as a DRS representative, I want to bre- very briefly say that. So we have thought about things like that. Now, DRS, the Dysphagia Research Society, is a research society. So the you know the primary purpose is research dissemination and encouragement of high level research. But of course, again, the end result and the mission is to help patients across the globe. Mm-hmm. So we have considered things like that. That's why we started doing some of the webinars and, you know, podcasts is another another way to do something like that, but within the society. So again, you know that it is vetted through through a process. I think that's the biggest thing is when people are doing, and this is not targeting you, Michelle, by any means, right? <laughs> when people do something like a podcast or a blog or something for profit or they have some profit from it, right? Because, I mean, they have to, of course, they are spending all yeah. this time. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but that adds a layer Yes, that is, you know, that ethically, yes. is, you know, it, it blurs the waters a little bit, right? Yes. So that's why I'm saying maybe through these societies, like you said, maybe through ASHA or through DRS or through the American board, if there could be similar efforts, yes, they would have that vetting. And in addition, it wouldn't really be because these are all nonprofit, right? Organizations. So the ethical concerns there would be lesser. Of yes. course, if you're charging people, then there are ethical concerns there too. <laughs> right. So, but I think that's, that's, that's where the societies and associations have, I think they have a big role in this. And I, and I hope that we can see more and more of that as we move forward, you know, and, and as younger and younger leaders, come into into action in this society. So I think it's a great idea. I don't know that we can, you know, the three of us can really tell you how to implement it, but I think it's a great idea. And the societies have that that power to do that. And I so appreciate that the societies and the associations and the boards are considering it and, and thinking about it because before I went to academia, being a clinician, I didn't have access to a lot of the research. Yep. You know, sometimes you can have a university near you that will let you use their library, but many clinicians don't have that access, you know, and they, so some of them are out there that want the research and can't get to it. You know, I found this article. I'd love to read it. Can somebody please send it to me? 
And, you know, some of these sites, you can contact the authors and the authors are more than happy most of the time to share that with you, which is great. But not everyone knows to do that. So I think this is a wonderful avenue to support clinicians that are out there. Yeah. And I mean, now there's also a big push for open science initiatives. So there are, you know, group, small group efforts in that direction. You know, there are NIH, National Institute of Health Directives, that obligate those of us who have received funding from NIH, since this is taxpayer dollars, right, that we have received, to actually make our data available in, in public databases. And that's something like, for example, now that we are done with my CP study, that's the next thing. We're going to open up all our data to a public database so that people can have access to it. And I know a lot of other people, we're obligated to do that, and we should be obligated to do that. So there's definitely a lot more efforts to make things more open. There's definitely more things that need to be done, for sure. But, you know, in some initial steps are, are starting to be made, for sure. I just wanted to say to George's point, as we have younger and younger leadership emerge that are familiar, more familiar with technology and are very comfortable creating the types of information that is more preferred, you know, visual and auditory versus like print materials that have to be read. I think we'll see some transition from the previous ways of of disseminating information solely through peer-reviewed journals, as an example, into more consumable fashion. And so I think that is really a good thing. And I know that ASHA receives a lot of criticism, but one of the things that I think they have done really well are the evidence maps that they've created that are open access and are available to every ASHA member. You know, you can access that. So I think there are some avenues for getting information out, high quality evidence-based information as it currently exists. I think the formatting of it could be updated. Right. And so we could take things like evidence maps and turn those into more consumable formats that might be more appealing to younger clinicians. That that I think there's a start to some of the things that we're talking about. They exist, but to update them in terms of format and their consumability, I think is an opportunity that exists for us. I have a very novice question that I've always just genuinely wondered. Why do people have to pay for journal articles? Where does the money go? I don't understand. Uh, we all live in really big houses and drive fancy cars. I've known a lot of faculty. That's not true. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I, that, is, that is a very big problem. The, you know, publishing companies are making this money usually, or in some situations, okay. and associations. Uh, that is not true for DRS by any means. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you because you know, know. Uh, although we, you know, dysphagia is our associated journal, we do not. We actually pay a lot of money so that our our, our uh, members can access the journal, and we don't earn anything financially from the journal. That has been one of the biggest questions and problems because the money doesn't really go back to research. For example, I mean, it would be one thing to say, oh. you know what, I'll publish my article in your journal which you know people subscribe to and pay you and then maybe you can give me 10% of what you make back to my research so that I can keep making research and keep you know producing articles for your journal <laughs> but that doesn't happen so it is a very problematic issue you know open access journals you know was one way to try and resolve this unfortunately what is happening with op- with some open access journals is that then the researcher has to pay a lot of money to publish their article. And then since the the journal is making money out of the researcher, they're more inclined to accept even lower quality articles. So open access journals, most of them charge a lot of money to us, to the authors to publish there. Okay. Okay. That is a problem because, you know, then they want to make more money. So sometimes they will accept something that is lower quality that I will submit. I had no idea. The non-open access journals charge this the audience, the readers, a lot of money to access those. So it is a very problematic issue, and they tried supposedly to resolve it with the open access journals, and I don't think that is resolving it. And that's why there's a big discussion now about open science. And knowledge, you know, a lot of people believe that knowledge should be free for everybody. At the same time, 
knowledge is very expensive to generate and takes a lot of money, time and effort. So, you know, that is another plea also for, you know, people that do podcasts and blogs and things like that. Anytime you use or that summarize articles, anytime you use an article that somebody has produced, that article usually has taken an average of two to three years to be produced of work and energy and money and multiple people being involved. And when you take it and you present it in your own way or you sell it without giving anything back to the research, you have to think about the ethical considerations about that. And if you don't, then that is a problem. In my view, this is all my view, of course, my personal view. So, you know, there, there are things to consider there and it is a problematic situation for sure. This is a blatant violation of the code of ethics when you misrepresent research or a product as as your own. And I have seen that where where people don't, they're not forthcoming with the sources of the material or they pull information, but not enough. And it's paraphrased just slightly enough that if you had read the original, then you're aware of where their information come from on the grounds of increasing followers and likes, which is, that's up there with people calling themselves a feeding specialist without having any credentials behind themselves. And when I reached out to get clarification on that, I was informed that as long as somebody doesn't present themselves as a board certified specialist in swallowing, it was gray. And this to me, I feel very strongly that we should not be calling ourselves a specialist because I have been the scared mommy in the middle of the night worrying about my son not hearing and what's going to happen and blah, 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 and what's the surgery going to look like? What's the outcome of this? So from the consumer perspective, to see individuals presenting as a specialist without the accompanying alphabet soup. This does this does make me very trepidatious that we should go back and reread our code of ethics. And we have to sign for that. At the end of this month, we all have to sign and there's edits and there's updates, but like I feel like it's like the ethics police, but like to go back to what you said at the beginning, do no harm. Like do no harm. We don't know the mental well-being of the individuals that are consuming the materials that we're presenting. So I personally recommend everybody follow round boys on Instagram. It's spherical shaped animals moving at rapid speeds and it's hysterical. It's, it's like sheep running, but they're so chubby that like, they're just like social media for me is just a place of joy because I don't have time for the rest of the chaos in my life. So if you're listening, go check out round boys. (laughs) Okay. We have like one more question just to kind of close this on. What is the responsibility of clinicians and what's the responsibilities of the consumers and academics and industries and associations when it comes to this? I'm going to start us by saying it's a shared responsibility across academics, across consumers, across clinicians. I think we can rest in the knowledge that it is shared responsibility from a clinician standpoint. I think our responsibility is to critically evaluate what is being sold to us to understand the the motivations of the person that's presenting information to us. How do they stand to profit by my buying this, by my promoting this, by my clicking like, by my interaction with what they're selling? So I think that's, I'll start our conversation by saying as a clinician, I think that's of paramount importance that we consider the motivation behind what is being presented to us. And then the next step of that is to critically evaluate what's being presented to not be on consumers and just take, 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 but to stop and think, how does this connect to what I know, to what I learned in graduate school, to the frameworks that I believe to be accurate, that guide my clinical practice. How does this fit with what I already know? And then go from there. I'll start that way and then give to the next. I think that transparency is very important ethically. And as we're teaching our students or we're being the clinician or we're taking part in some research, 
being transparent in all your interactions as the consumer, as the, the professor, as the, the researcher, sharing what the motivation is, sharing any of those hidden agenda pieces. I don't think there should be hidden agenda pieces in there, but realistically, we know in some places there are. So I think being bound to, to search that out as best you can is important. Mm-hmm. I'll just add, I think, I hope I'm not too repetitive, but I'll add the piece about, you know, academics and researchers. I think we need to be more approachable. We need to modernize our ways for educating and disseminating research. And I think also we need to ensure that the people who have more access to, you know, a larger clinical audience understand you know, what it takes to produce some of that research so that they can respect it more and and be willing to actually truly collaborate with us instead of, you know, using some of our, you know, some of the work for profit, for example. So I think giving that understanding, be more approachable so that we can have these discussions and have open discussions across the different levels and the different people that you mentioned and modernizing our ways are, you know, to reach more, to reach the audience more often, I think will be valuable. So I wear two hats on this end. One as as a producer, and I am very particular when it comes to inviting guests and hosting episodes. I have to be very, very thorough and very cautious because I have had bad actors ask to participate And that is something that as a producer of something, we have to be very particular. But that was why we created First Bite in the way that it was. It was the first podcast to count for ASHA CEUs because we had to adhere to disclosure statements to assist with transparency. We had to create something objective and yet to make it also free because the knowledge should be shared, right? So that way consumers can hear it on different podcasting platforms that, I mean, if they're not getting the the CEUs associated with it, we're still putting good in the universe, right? Like that was, so I see it from that. Yes, I get an honorarium for them, but like, I'm completely honest about it. It pays for the boys aftercare, which is stupid expensive, but like pays for the boys. So thank you everybody who's listening. You pay for the boys aftercare. So mommy can work and daddy can work, go team. (laughs) But like that and as I wear this hat as a clinical supervisor. So I feel the immense weight of getting the students in their external clinical practicums and as faculty teaching the peace dysphagia class to teach that, that how do we process and absorb what it is and don't just take it as if somebody can get and create a tick of the talk and shake their bootay, that does not necessarily mean that the material that they're presenting is of merit for the patient. Congratulations. Your body moves better than mine, but I've given birth to two children and had a couple of organs removed. <laughs> so like, congratulations. That's, that's going to sum it up there. <laughs> okay. We have gone over. I thank y'all for coming. I do want to give acknowledgement. Please, please go and check these lovely guests personal social medias, like their, their professional presentation, because you do do an exemplary job of disseminating information. So we have National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders. There is the social media account for the BCSS board for Dysphagia Research Society, Purdue I Eats Lab, Alabama Dysphagia Collective. Yes. Yep. Yes, 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 yes. And then there's also various Nishla organizations that the ladies are also involved with. And I would be remiss if I did not include Feeding Matters and Dysphagia Outreach Project. Did I miss anybody? I'm sure we did, but everybody you mentioned are great. Yeah. And Round Boys. Also do yourself (laughs) solid. Round Boys. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so very much. Happiest of holidays and happiest of early New Year's. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. 
The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures... All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Bye.